RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by Gameprint.net. We thank them and our patrons for their support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 403 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report from the Star Trek multiverse. Recorded live on Tuesday, March 5th, 2019, and available for download or streaming on Friday, March 8th, at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Anthony. All right, we are now back to our regularly scheduled programming after several episodes, posting interviews with our friends over at Cryptic Studios to celebrate our 400th episode. So, Kenna, why don't you tell us what we've got coming up this week? This week, we're trekking out the newly named director of the Picard series, and the announcement makes Trek history. Picard also reunites with an old friend, two new castmates, and some serious speculation, and Star Trek Discovery gets a third season and a new co-showrunner. In Star Trek Online and gaming news, we are catching up on the last few weeks and will discuss the fate of Star Trek Online's foundry, and in our on-screen segment, we're discussing Star Trek Discovery Season 2 Episode 7, Light and Shadows. That's right, Captains. Remember that those hailing frequencies are always open, and we love to hear from you between episodes. So please, reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Priority One Pod. And you can even send us an email via incoming at Priority One Podcast.com. We have to. Every week, we have to take a moment to thank our patrons. Those listeners who believe in Priority One and offer a financial contribution each and every month. Without their support, we would not have been able to keep the lights running and provide upgrades such as streaming on several platforms on Tuesday nights, including Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, and of course, Twitch. Now we understand a financial contribution may not be in the cards, so there are other ways that you can support Priority One. Do not forget that when you see us post our shows on social media or when it shows up, on your podcast catcher to share that with your friends. Let them know that they can get their weekly roundup of Star Trek news right here on Priority One Podcast. Now, if you have been considering donating, we have a new perk. Kenna, why don't you tell them about it? That's right, Elijah. If you can't get enough of Discovery, or maybe you hate it with the fire of a thousand suns, either way, come and join us in our new patron-exclusive hangout. So at the $5 and up levels, you'll get invited to join our private chat where we discuss Discovery as it happens in all its spoilerific glory. That's just $5 a month, and you can be part of the discussion. Visit patreon.com forward slash priority one for more information. We also want to let you know about some upcoming events happening across the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This weekend, Larry Nemechek from The Trek Files will be attending Big Apple Comic Con in New York City. A little further ahead, Kenna will be appearing at WonderCon with Larry Nemechek and Ken Ray from Mission Log on Saturday, March 30th in Anaheim, California. And of course, if you're in the L.A. area, join Larry and John Champion at the Impro Theater in Los Feliz every other Friday, where they get together with other Star Trek fans for a Discovery viewing party. Sometimes they even have special guests. For more information on those events, be sure to keep an eye out on our social media channels, and we hope to see you there. And just one more event for you to have in your calendars. 
March is National Cerebral Palsy Awareness Month, and the Roddenberry Foundation has teamed up with Pop Culture Hero Coalition. Together, they're raising money to support the heroic curriculum in schools, which supports children with serious disabilities by teaching them life skills and teaching others around them how to be allies. Every donation you make to Pop Culture Hero Coalition's campaign will be matched dollar for dollar by the Roddenberry Foundation. For more information, go to PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash heroic. Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. Jim, what places? I don't know. Then let's check it out. The as-yet-untitled Picard series is set to start filming in mid-April. The news of its cast and crew are starting to hit the headlines. On Friday, March 1st, the director for the premiere and its follow-up episode were announced. The 48-year-old Culpepper is a prolific television director who is no stranger to Star Trek. She previously directed Star Trek Discovery's first season episode, Revolting Ambition, and season two's upcoming episode, The Red Angel. In a press release, Star Trek captain Alex Kurtzman said of Culpepper, quote, Hanel is a gifted and dynamic filmmaker whose directorial choices are always deeply rooted in character. I've been a fan of her work since she started with us on Discovery, and she's the perfect person to reintroduce the beloved character of Picard to longtime fans and new viewers alike. We're thrilled she's joining our Trek family on this next adventure. End quote. So this is actually a historic announcement in a way, because Hanel Culpepper is going to be the first female director to launch a Star Trek series. So it's kind of a big deal. I am very excited about this news. I think it's great. I love the fact that this new Star Trek production team has so much diversity behind the camera as well as in front. And she's African-American as well, if I'm not mistaken, right? And so I, I'm just very excited. I'm very happy to hear this. For those of you that may not be aware, uh, Hanel Culpepper has directed episodes of Lucifer, Shooter, Mayans, MC, and several DC comic programs, including Supergirl and The Flash. Yeah, so she's she's definitely got a, a good set of credentials behind her and I think is gonna is a strong choice standing on her own merits but again it's a it's a good indication of how the production team behind Star Trek are really working hard to get a lot of good representation of underrepresented groups in behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera and it's great to see. Diversification cannot go wrong. The accomplished Hanel Culpepper is not the only director more or less announced for Picard's newest adventure. Star Trek's Jonathan Frakes is also set to take the seat. Uh, the director's seat. Sitting down with Writer Experience Podcast, Frakes confirmed his involvement in old friend Sir Patrick Stewart's Star Trek series. Quote, Now, my season looks like Star Trek Discovery, the new wonderful Star Trek series, the Picard show, which Patrick Stewart is launching, and the Orville, which is some people's new Star Trek. End quote. Frakes also said of the CBS expansion of Star Trek, quote, My understanding is that showrunner Alex Kurtzman and his production company, Secret Hideout, are creating a Star Trek oeuvre that will hopefully allow fans of Trek to have something fresh to see all the time. So there is a world that is being created by Kurtzman and his team that will hopefully continue for many years and provide entertainment and obviously conversation about Star Trek for decades, end quote. This doesn't surprise me at all. So, okay, yes, no, it doesn't surprise me that, that Jonathan Frakes is going to be directing, but it really excites me. Being that Jonathan Frakes is a talented director, you know, as a matter of fact, I remember watching some of the DVD extras for The Next Generation, and he talks about directing, he talks about a little bit about his process, and that always stuck with me, that he is an actor's director, because he himself is an actor, and that goes a long way in bringing to life and beyond what is on the page and what is written. I mean, one of my most memorable scenes from Discovery is of the episode that he directed. His, just, his vision is just amazing. And of course, he knows Star Trek. I would argue that he is the successor to Gene Roddenberry. He worked closely with Gene Roddenberry, for those of you who you know follow up on those DVD extra features and his interviews, worked very closely. If there's anybody that I trust with Star Trek, it's him. And of course, it's wonderful that Hanel Culpepper is directing the series premiere. If there was going to be anybody else for this role, it would have been him to premiere the new Picard series. Yeah, he's definitely got the directing chops and I think not, not just Star Trek and the Orville jobs that he's done. He's very sympathetic to the sci sci-fi genre 
genre in general. And I think he's got a really good grasp on how to balance humor and lightheartedness with strong sci-fi storytelling. So this is a re- this is really good news. I mean, it, they'd be crazy not to put him in the director's chair for at least one episode. So it's good news that this is finally confirmed. You know, I, I mentioned it before we went on air, but I, I want to mention it on air as well. Jonathan Frakes was one of my inspirations into getting into the film business and to begin with. And primarily from what you said, Elijah, seeing those DVD extras, so seeing him behind the scenes talk about directing and and having that come from a, a place of Star Trek, something that I'm passionate about and that I love. And he's a very talented director. You can see that just today. You watch an, his episode of Discovery and then you watch his episode of Orville, two very different shows in my mind. And he does a great job of the execution on both in their own styles. So I, obviously he was going to be, he was always going to be on board for the Picard series. And I only hope that means we might also see Commander Riker appear or Captain Riker or Admiral Riker. You know, people joke that somebody can sing the, the phone book. You know what? Jonathan Frakes can direct someone reading the phone book and it would be Oscar worthy. Emmy worthy is, is ultimately <laughs> he, what I, he just what directs I say, the so. phone book. It's just right, like the right. phone book on a stool. And you'd be like, that's the best Star Trek I've ever seen. An artistic reading of... Phone book the movie. (laughs) Right, now keeping with the Picard series, on Monday, March 4th, two new cast members of the still-untitled Picard series were announced, Michelle Hurd and Santiago Cabrera. Michelle Hurd, a 52-year-old actress from New York City, most recently starred in the NBC drama Blind Spot, but she has made appearances in several shows over her 30-year career, including Another World, Law & Order SVU, Ash vs. Evil Dead, and Daredevil. 40-year-old Venezuelan-born Santiago Cabrera has recently starred in the CBS drama Salvation, and according to Deadline, is, quote, one of the most sought actors for pilots this season, end quote. Now for the bibs and sauce, it's Trek Nugget Treculation time. Deadline reporter Nelly Andreeva stated in her article, quote, No details are being revealed about the characters Cabrera and Heard are playing, but I hear Cabrera will play the pilot of Picard's ship, who is also a skillful thief. Heard is playing a former intelligence officer who is a brilliant analyst with a terrific memory that has not been affected by her drug and alcohol abuse, end quote. For a link to the article, check out the show notes. So there are a few things about this. Santiago Cabrera was also in Heroes. That's what I recognized him from. Yeah, he was the heroin addicted artist. And I thoroughly enjoyed his performance in Heroes. Yeah, I thought he that great. he was underestimated. And it's good to see that his, his career is, in fact, taking off. And is like the quote said, or, you know, what we said before, is this one of the most sought actors for pilots this season. Also, representation. Awesome. Me alegro que, es, que hay un Latino in Star Trek, and hopefully he won't die. Let's just let's just keep our fingers crossed <laughs> that he's not going to yeah. die in the mycelial network. I laugh nervously because <laughs> Star Trek doesn't have the best track record. <laughs> right. So still a great choice, and, and, and I'm looking forward to uh, what they've got coming. The other thing I kind of want to kind of hint on, and, and we didn't include this in Trek It Out this episode, but there has been floating around today, the as of the time of this recording on Tuesday, a character breakdown mm-hmm. for some of the roles that they're casting. It wasn't confirmed, and I don't really want to talk about it, or I, I want to treat this more as speculation than anything else. Anthony, you nodded your head in acknowledgement that you saw this same article that I did. One of the things that caught me off guard was, or you know, raised my brow, was the scientist who is a specialist in positronic brains, mm-hmm. pos- positronic circuitry. Mm-hmm. Interesting, mm-hmm. interesting. What's also interesting is that this Deadline reporter, what they've heard about Heard's character is very similar to what was described in that article as well. So it's very possible that that article is, in fact, from a source. And what I loved about this was this isn't this doesn't feel like it's going to be like a Starfleet captain ship flying around, which I think is good because we get that a lot. And I think that was one of Enterprise's problems, the TV show Enterprise, because it was kind of doing the same thing over and over again. And I'm kind of excited that this seems more of like a Motley crew on a possibly not condoned mission. So I'm excited to see. We obviously, there's not a lot we know, but from the little Trek nuggets that we're nibbling on, I'm I'm very excited. It's so funny, Anthony. Every time you talk about what you want to see from Star Trek, it makes me cringe, which is really interesting. <laughs> 
So we've talked about it on the show before, actually, how your definition of what you want to see in, in Star Trek is, is almost polar opposite to mine. I actually hate the idea of like a motley crew flying around space. I Well, the reason being because I, I feel like one of the things that we're missing that I personally, like me on a personal level, really miss about Star Trek is an aspirational and inspirational vision of the future. And I'm not getting it from Discovery. And I also don't want a motley crew flying around space because that to me says, you know, they're working outside the Federation and da 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 da. I want the utopian vision of the future, which I know I've heard all the criticisms of that, but it's interesting to me that you say that. I look forward to <laughs> our after hours when it comes to the Picard series. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, and but the great thing is, is that there's already 700 episodes of that that we, you can watch. And that's, and I kind of want something new. The currently running Star Trek Discovery also got some good news this week. On Tuesday, CBS announced the show has been renewed for a third season. Yay! With the announcement, it was also revealed that season two co-executive producer Michelle Paradise will be promoted to season three co-showrunner. Paradise has served only one season as a Discovery co-executive producer, but has also produced CW's The Originals and Logo's comedy X's and O's. Check out the link to the announcement in our show notes. Well, Captains, that's it for this week's Trek It Out. But before we move on to Star Trek Online and gaming news, it's time for a word from our friends at GamePrint.net. So since we announced that we are now in a partnership with GamePrint, offering our listeners 20% off any ship of any size, whether you upload it from your Star Trek Online account or if you choose one that somebody has already uploaded on GamePrint.net's immense library, People have been sending us pictures of their ships. You know, these are these are longtime friends of Priority One who had already purchased these ships in the past, but now that we've teamed up with them, want to share their experiences with Gameprint and how proud they are of those of their starships. Um, and I've got to say, Sean Newboy, for instance, sent us his images, and they're gorgeous of a bird of prey. They're stunning, absolutely stunning. Uh, I don't know if you guys, did you guys see these pictures? I did see them. They're absolutely beautiful. The colors really pop. It's amazing, actually, because I tend to think of uh, 3D printed stuff as kind of washed out and kind of mediocre. And these... This is bright. He took the pictures outside in bright sunlight, and it's got bright purples, bright greens, and it's just, it's a beautiful ship. It's also a Romulan warbird, not a bird of prey. Whoops. <laughs> but but it was too. gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The The colors were so vibrant. The, the design was really fantastic. I actually had to take a double take because it wasn't the normal green uh, of a Romulan warbird. It was, it was, it was gray and, and, and blue and red. And and I actually didn't even know that you could get that style and those colors on that ship. And that has now opened up a whole new world for me. I can't wait to go in and see what other colors and combinations I can come up with to get printed. Well, that's the advantage to game print, isn't it, over a normal stock model, is that because you have customized this ship in-game, you can then get this custom paint job, custom skin on it, um, and the custom parts as well. That is exactly what makes it so special. It's not a cookie-cutter ship that everybody else might already have. You can actually print your own custom design or someone else's custom design that you can then change the name and registry number. The best part is, is that our 20% discount applies to all ships in all sizes, starting at just $20 for a four inch model, one that Anthony has already ordered. So experiment, choose a model that you might like. And again, use priority 20 at checkout priority and the numbers two zero. And we thank our sponsor, GamePrint.net, for their support of Priority One Podcast. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. And we're back to covering Star Trek Online news. And joining us is Fleet Admiral Winters of the Priority One Armada. Thanks for joining us this week. No problem. So our first story comes from Ambassador Kel's Q&A. Since being introduced almost eight years ago, the Foundry has been a place where the most creative Trekkies in Star Trek Online have been able to forge their own stories and missions in the ever-expanding Star Trek mythos. Earlier this week, Cryptic made the announcement that with the April 11th update, 
the Foundry would no longer be a part of Star Trek Online or Neverwinter. According to Mike Ambassador Kel Fatum, the fate of the Foundry had been internally discussed for well over a year. During a special live stream Q&A, Ambassador Kel lamented the internal struggle some of the developers faced while trying to find a solution. As a thank you, Cryptic is planning to give rewards to those who have played Foundry missions, authors who have created missions, and anyone who has had a mission spotlighted. After April 11th, all of the Foundry missions will be backed up and archived with the hopes that a way can be found in the future to bring back some of the content into the live game. For links to the announcement and the live stream Q&A, check out the show notes. So this was a bit of a surprise announcement. Was it though? Was it? I mean, let's be frank. You know, the, the Foundry, although an amazing tool for creative gamers was something i mean dare i compare it to pvp dare i compare it to you know the the doff system it 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 was an afterthought at best i wouldn't go so far as to say that it was an afterthought more so that as they have said it's hard to justify investing time and money uh, production time and production money into a feature that is not going to generate that return on investment so as sad as it is i think that you know we we saw this coming in some way shape or form this system was in development when the game launched right because it took them over a year to code it and then it released just after a year after the game launched i think this was their answer to try to get more content in the game because of the limited development time that they had right i think they were they were trying to get players to create content to keep other players in the game now that we're in a place where they have so much content in the game that they're actually taking missions out to streamline the story of the game i think that this this element of the game has unfortunately lived its life cycle ambassador kel made it clear that whenever they do a major update or even a minor update to the game the foundry breaks right and then it takes resources to fix the foundry and as you said elijah they're not seeing the return on investment for the effort that they're putting in and i think that that's okay it is sad and it is upsetting i myself have started several foundry missions that i never completed uh thinking to my Myself, oh, I'll have the time, I'll have the time, and now I don't, and that is kind of sad, but I know that this, and, and Ambassador Kel made it clear, this is going to make the future better. This is this is going to allow them to take these resources, and this is going to allow them to make future upgrades to the engine that they all work on at Cryptic. I think this is going to be a good thing overall, but you know we're gonna we're gonna mourn for a little bit absolutely and you know a big shout out to so many of the foundry authors out there you know listeners of the show friends of the show to all of our friends over at starbase ugc that you know when they were creating uh, content for the foundry and their podcast the work that players put in uh should not be overlooked and you know a, a shout out to them those 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 authors and that brings us to this week's community question What will you miss most about the Foundry in Star Trek Online? Do you have a favorite mission? While moving on to console news, console captains can now battle against Captain Killy and the ISS Discovery as the ninth anniversary of Star Trek Online comes to Xbox and PlayStation 4. Players can also participate in the Omega Molecule Daily event provided by Q to collect more of the 9th anniversary vouchers. Once you have the 1,000 vouchers, you can run the event project for the Tier 6 Tapau Vulcan Scout Ship. Also available is the new Emperor's Lockbox, and the Lobi store now has Terran Empire Regalia. The 9th anniversary event runs from now until April 2nd. And speaking of the low-buy store, console captains can take advantage of 20% off all low-buy items, and keys in the C store are 15% off. For a limited time, key bundles of 20 will come with an ultimate tech upgrade. These discounts last from now until March 15th. So, Captains, several of you have shared with us and on your own social media accounts a YouTube video uh, that surfaced on March 5th from a YouTube author titled Nerd Slayer. In his Death of a Game series, he decided to review Star Trek Online. You know, we're not going to spend too much time, you know, going tit for tat and toe to toe with the review. Everybody has a right to their opinions, but there are some issues and some points that that do need to be addressed. 
for starters, you know, the video is essentially a negative review of Star Trek Online. So as I mentioned, his video series typically, to my understanding, uh, reviews the postmortem of a, of a game. Essentially uh, an MMO that may have shut down, a game that may have failed, etc., etc. He took exception by doing Star Trek Online, which is still a living MMO. So again, we're not going to go tit for tat for everything he said, but there are a few things that we wanted to pull out and address because it, we think that it, there was a lot of incomplete information. For starters, and perhaps one of the most glaring pieces of information that seem incomplete, are his use of numbers uh, and statistics. The author really focused on Steam and Steam stats for Star Trek Online, which I think is unfair. Steam is not the only way that you can play Star Trek Online, and I don't think that you can use Steam to accurately measure player participation. Yeah, sure, it might give you a trend, but it should not be the, the, the one stop and the final answer to whether or not a game may be successful. Primarily because Star Trek Online, although was on Steam, shifted away, lest we forget that Star Trek Online, after Perfect World's acquisition, migrated to the proprietary art client that supports all of Perfect World's games. And when they did that, they also incentivized the move. So naturally, players who wanted the reward installed ARC and now launch the game via ARC. Additionally, there are gamers like myself that still run Star Trek Online from the executable file without running Steam, without being dependent on Steam. So it's unfair to use Steam's metrics as the absolute measurement of Star Trek Online success. He, he talks about the console, and you can actually get numbers from PS4 players, and those numbers suggest that there are over a million players for Star Trek Online on PS4. That's, that's not a number to, to sneeze at. So for me, that was one of the most glaring oversights in this review. To the contrary, I do agree, there is an upward tick when there's a new episode and new content introduced to the game. That's I mean, that happens for every MMO. There's new content, people rush in to play it, and then it dies down a little bit, and there are peaks and there are valleys. And that's always going to be the case for Star Trek Online. So there's a valid point in that, but to measure its success just on Steam, I think is a, is a gross oversight. The series of videos that he does is entertaining, and I, it's... You know, it's fun and interesting to to look back at games that have that have failed in the past. And he even admits in this video that it's you know Star Trek Online is not has not died. What I sort of take exception to a little bit is that he almost completely ignores the last few years of the game. And we know for a fact from from our interviews with Al, the lead developer, with Mike Fatum, the community manager, Star Trek Online in 2018 had one of its best years ever. Out of the nine years that the game has been out, this past calendar year has been one of the best ever in terms of numbers, in terms of, of just content. In addition to that, we're at this, we're almost in this undiscovered territory, if you will, of there being a concurrently running Star Trek series on television that is now exploding into spin-off shows and spin-off content like we've never seen before for the last 18, 20 years since the end of TNG when we had movies in the theater, two shows on television, and the property and the franchise was strong. And in addition to that, we're seeing a new collaborative effort with CBS and Cryptic promote Star Trek Online. Now there are commercials when you watch Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access, and they're showing us actors from Star Trek Discovery in the game. I think we're at a point now where, where we're just gonna get an influx of new players, and I think Cryptic is expecting that as well because they've done a lot of work in the last year to get the new player experience to be better. Even in this last update that we're gonna talk about here in a minute, they they revamp the character creation screen and, and that whole experience. And again, when we talked about the Foundry going away, I think that this, this shows they're expecting the game to accelerate and to get more popular. And that doesn't seem like the characteristics of a game that's dying or dead. So it's kind of unfortunate that he, he's ignored the strides that the game has made in the last few years. I hate to say it, but you, it, you're kind of feeding into his opinion that the only reason the game is still alive is because of Star Trek fanboys. I think we've been abundantly clear, contrary to some belief, that we do in fact criticize Star Trek Online, and we have, uh, we've had our issues with the game in the past, and we are not afraid to vocalize things that we feel are not cool for gameplay. But to suggest that, you know, Star Trek Online 
is only supported by its fan base, I, you know, I think, again, is another gross oversight. Like you said, the last several years for Star Trek Online. So, you know, instead of hearkening back to things like, uh, you know, what could the game do better or what or rather what can what did what should have happened for the game? How should it have been developed? I don't want to I don't want to get into that. I, I, the question I do want to ask, and this stems from Kenna's question when we were at Cryptic Studios is, you know, what what is Star Trek Online 2.0 and what does it look like? More specifically, what can Star Trek Online do to ensure another nine years of success, right? What improvements can be made? You know, right off the bat, something that, that is on my radar and something I would like to see is an improvement of, of the UI and some of the interface. Going through the reputation system tends to be a little clunky, uh, especially if new ones are introduced. Perhaps even, you know, revisiting how players do their, their secondary and primary traits you know, sometimes I think some of that can be a little overwhelming. Uh, even for me, who's been playing Star Trek Online for nine years, you know, some of that can get a little over the top. And so, you know, I'm not suggesting that we need a revamp of the ground combat or anything of that nature. But I think some some of the features in Star Trek Online, some of these new systems could use a once-over in terms of streamlining a little better. Uh, I agree with uh, most of what you guys said. My own personal opinion uh, and impression of this video was that he was drawing some extravagant conclusions with very inaccurate or incomplete information, as you guys already pointed out. I want to go back to what Anthony was talking about uh, in regards to, you know, we've heard from the devs, we've heard from Al Rivera, we've heard from Mike Fatum, and so on and so forth. I would say never mind what the devs say, you know, take what they say with a pinch of salt and go with what we've seen, which is something that he's left out, as you pointed out, Anthony. If Star Trek Online wasn't doing well, then they wouldn't have got rid of the monthly subscriptions. If it wasn't doing well, we wouldn't have got the biggest uh, injection of actors from Star Trek Deep Space Nine in uh, the, the Victory is Life expansion. I think that the game has shown really good progress. It's advancing, and doing a death of a game video is ridiculous for Star Trek Online in my opinion. And I think the game is less clunky because we're so critical, you know, because we love the game so much and we are critical about it that they have made improvements in areas where players have have said there needs to be improvement and I think they continue to do that. I I don't think I think the problem is is people are expecting the game needs a huge revamp across the board to be better. In reality, it's incremental, you know? It's it's solving these little things and these little things until the devs are happy. I mean, even talking to the devs, like they're not happy with a lot of the way some of this stuff works. I mean, talking to Jeremy Randall, I mean, he, he, he oftentimes says, yeah, it's just not quite where we want it to be or where I'd like it to be or where I'm happy with it. I think that they need to continue what they're doing. They need to continue telling great stories. They need to continue bringing in Star Trek actors. Um, they need to continue tying all the canon elements that they do and threads together the way that they do. I think that's what makes it, you know, fun and compelling to play. I think they do need to look at PvP. I used to love doing PvP, and now it's kind of a joke. I think ground combat, I don't know if it needs a major overhaul, but it's it's better than it used to be but is it is it enough is it engaging i would also love to see them maybe inject some content that isn't so combat oriented or isn't so linear as far as you know go here and do this and go here and do that um there's a handful of missions that are that are more interesting and more puzzly and i wouldn't mind seeing some more of that kind of stuff um in the future i'm not sure about pvp sure there's probably a community out there that would like to see something being done with pvp but I suspect that the majority of the player base doesn't care about it, or at least doesn't consider it a priority. But I would argue they'd feel that way because it's not it's not presented in a manner that's accessible to them. Right. Okay. Yeah. I can I can accept that. Bringing up PvP is another excellent example. I mean, PvP it might be one of those systems that you might as well just sunset, you know, and 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 take it out of the game. DOF system, something you might want to sunset and take it out of the game. Uh, no. I love the DOF system, but it's not a perfect system, and it hasn't been updated in quite some time. I actually brought that up with Jeremy in our most recent interview, and. Uh, 
but he said that it's not likely that they would revamp the system because it would destroy a lot of the progress that people have put into it. And I brought up the option of adding to what's there, you know, adding in more nebulas and clusters and assignment chains and things like that. And I think he took it on board. He was, Anthony, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but he was, he basically said, yeah, that's something that we probably could do. The buff system is, I misspoke. It's not one that you, we should sunset. It's, there's too much going on there. But I think, you know, PVP is a good example of that. Either it, it, yep. it's not, it's definitely broken. Well, actually, th I mean, there's another system. Just add in some extra maps. I mean, that would, you know, that, that could invigorate some new life into it. Just some new maps, you know, take the new Pavo map, just, you know, remove all all the uh, NPCs from it and just have it as a PvP map. I'm not a game designer, but I would imagine it's not that difficult to copy, paste, remove stuff out of it, boom, there's your PvP map. But I think a lot of, some of the PvP stuff is meta, right? It's, you know, it's, it's in people's gear against each other sometimes isn't balanced or it's, uh, mm -hmm. I, I think there's a lot going into PvP that isn't just about making, you know, putting a map in. And if you combat log a TFO, there are people that are still doing over 100k in DPS, yeah. right? Which is way above what you need to play the game oh, yeah. from a, a, a standard just player versus environment going through the stories. So, you know, can, with that kind of disparity, this, this, this massive gap between the average player doing anywhere between 20 and 30 DPS to people in the DPS league who are doing 100k, I don't know that I would ever want to go into PvP casually because I'd get my I, I, yeah. I, I get wrecked. So there's a lot to PvP that, you know, maybe if there can't be a way to balance it and make the system relatively accessible to everybody, you know, maybe that's one. Maybe that's another one. That's just let's just put it aside. So that we can, so that they can invest time in, imp in improving some of the more clunkier parts of the game, uh, like I mentioned earlier, some of the UI for the reputation system, blah blah blah. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with them shaving off some things in order to make more time to improve quality of life. Well, we talked about something, or we brought up something earlier, which was you know the retirement of the foundry, and I've dabbled in the foundry, and it was never something that I really got into in a big way, but. I'm looking at it, as Anthony pointed out, as a positive thing, because now it means that they don't have to go back to this system constantly, and you know every time they release a big update and they have to start fixing the foundry to make it work with the new update, instead they can spend that time creating new content, maybe readdressing the UI. There's a brand new UI artist on the team now. It'd be nice to see what they can come up with there. You know, I will say this, to Anthony's point too, I would like to see more episodic content. Um, more mission content that that is that moves the story forward. When we were off air, we were talking about how we'll go into the game more often than not when there is content to be played, and then once I've played it, I put the game aside, mm. right? And so, what can Cryptic do to keep me in the game? You know, coming back every day to play something and 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 feel like I've contributed in some way. You know, I think that's a question that should be addressed and, you know, looked at. You know, how do you get the players back in the game without just coming in so I can click 40 times to go through my reputation system, you know? I mean, I think that the personal endeavor system has definitely helped with that. Right. It's, you know, it's three, three things. There are a variety of things and it allows me to invest some time in the game, get a reward out of it, and experience a variety of content that I may not have touched recently or that I may have never played at all. I played a TFO the other day that I had never run before. It told me I had to do a specific TFO and I didn't recognize the name of it and I queued up for it and it was a TFO I'd never played before. And I actually enjoyed it quite a bit and I'll probably queue up for that one again. You know, I forgot about the Endeavor system. Um... Which is unfortunate because now that you say it, I'm like, oh yeah, I can log in and do the Endeavor system. I think they should push that a little more. You know, I really think that they should push that on social media and in events like, hey, this, you know, we've got, or do special Endeavor projects, you know, once a week or something like that. Um, you know, they have the TFOs that come come and go, but yeah, I think it'd be nice to have like a uh, some kind of better outward community push to, hey, don't forget the Endeavor system. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. Um, because that might incentivize me to get in the game more, you know, even just that friendly reminder from the Star Trek Online Twitter account or the Facebook page might push players into the game that, you know, are instead either playing another game or twiddling their thumbs on the internet, scrolling Facebook. Now, we mentioned this earlier, 
but we wanted to remind you that in the most recent update on PC, it has given us a new character creation UI experience. To celebrate this, every player will be receiving one additional character slot, which is pretty awesome. And I've already got my character picked out, and I know exactly what I'm going to do and what ship they're going to go into. Wait, wait, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this right, aren't I? Oh, it's a mirror universe <laughs> yeah. character named Summers yeah. that's going in the sticks. Yeah, the mirror sticks ship. Yeah, for the priority one Empire month, which is coming up next month. From the screenshots that I saw, uh, it looks pretty. It looks pretty tight. It looks sexy. It's it's not bad at all. Uh, I uh, tracked it out uh, when the server came back up. Yeah, it's 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 not too bad. Uh, it's different from what it was, but uh, I think it's a much sleeker. It's definitely cleaner. Um, yeah. it's more straightforward, and it looks great. And it really showcases the feel of each faction and each starting experience. Gives a description of. The Discovery era, the the Klingon Empire, the Dominion, right there when you choose which one you wanna you wanna play. So I, I really like it. I think it's I think it's gonna be great for new players. I'm excited to see uh, what else uh, this new UI artist is going to do for Star Trek Online, with uh, in-game and even you know just the uh, character selection screen and different things like that. There there are some things that. As you pointed out, Elijah, you know, could probably do with some touching up, and yeah, it'd be nice to see what a new UI artist can do with that. Well, that's it for this week in Star Trek Online news. Now, let's see what's on screen in the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery. On screen. Well, Captains, welcome to On Screen, where we discuss the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery. This week, Season 2, Episode 7, Light and Shadows. We open where we last left Discovery, in orbit around Kaminar. After the Red Angel sighting by Saru and his sister on the surface, Michael Burnham is more convinced than ever that she needs to find her brother Spock and confront him about his knowledge of the Red Bursts and of the Angel. Burnham asks Captain Pike for leave. She will travel to Vulcan to meet with her mother, convinced that she knows more than she lets on. Pike grants her personal leave, and we'll come back to Burnham's story in a moment. For now, Pike and Discovery will be staying in orbit of Kaminar to investigate a residual tachyon signature, similar to that left behind by the other red bursts. It's some kind of temporal anomaly, and as they try to get a read on it, the bridge crew starts to see themselves in Echo, shadows of the past, effects of the temporal distortion on their ship. There's only one thing to do, pilot a shuttle nearer the anomaly and launch a probe. Pike, against his crew's wishes, will pilot the shuttle himself, reluctantly allowing his Section 31 shadow, Ash Tyler, to accompany him. On the shuttle, Pike and Tyler feel the effects of the temporal distortion. With tensions already high, Pike sees another time shadow, this time of him shooting Tyler. He shakes it off and launches the probe, and then a temporal shockwave engulfs the shuttle, pulling it into the distortion. On board Discovery, Saru enlists the help of Commander Stamets, who has a unique relationship with time due to the time he spent in the mycelial network. When they finally locate the shuttle, Stamets beams over to help pilot it out of the distortion. He finds Pike and Tyler under attack by their probe, which somehow aged 500 years and came back with an attitude. Remember when Pike saw himself shooting Tyler? Turns out it was actually Pike defending Tyler from the probe's attack. So maybe those two bonded a little during their time in the distortion. Stamets successfully guides the shuttle far enough for Discovery to get a transporter lock on its passengers, but not before the probe starts downloading the shuttle's data core. Stamets sets the shuttle to self-destruct, and they beam out just in time, but there's a catch. Arium, on Discovery's bridge, tried to shut down the probe remotely, and in the process, unbeknownst to the rest of the crew, she may have just been hacked. Meanwhile, on Vulcan, Burnham was right. Amanda did know more than she was letting on. A lot more. It doesn't take Burnham long to suss out that Amanda is hiding Spock on Vulcan. Hiding him even from Sarek, his father. Our first look at Discovery Spock is not the Spock we know. He is disheveled, disoriented, and muttering to himself. At first, the first doctrines of logic, and later, a mysterious sequence of numbers, 
1947. Sarek discovers Amanda and Burnham, and Amanda confesses that as a child, Spock had learning difficulties. Latak Tarai, inherited from her side of the family, and heavily stigmatized on Vulcan. Translation, Spock has a form of dyslexia. After this revelation, Sarek convinces Burnham to take Spock to Section 31, believing that they will help unlock his mind, and with it, the secret of the Red Bursts. When Burnham gets to the Section 31 ship, however, that isn't strictly the case. Leland brings Spock in for treatment, and kicks Burnham off the ship. On her way out, though, Georgiou helps her rescue Spock and steal a shuttle. As Burnham hides the shuttle behind an asteroid, she searches the computer for the numbers Spock has been repeating. Their coordinates of Talos 4, backwards, set a course and engage. The end. So this episode had all of the touchstones. <laughs> I, fe- I felt like every other line was calling back to something in, in some other part of Star Trek. It was just thick with them. So let's go down the list. Anthony, our resident Trek encyclopedia of episodes. Well, there's a lot of references in this episode to start off with. Um, they mentioned the Mutara sector, which uh, that is the Mutara Nebula from Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan that then gets turned into the Genesis planet. So wait, I have a question about this. And you said that you figured it out because when I watched this, I went, well, hang on, how do... But Spock's shuttle dis- didn't disappear because George O found the shuttle and we found Spock's shuttle with George O in it. So I don't understand where the reference is from. So when they find George U on the shuttle, they think that's Spock's shuttle. Right. But then later in the episode, Leland actually says you need to return George U to her shuttle. And so I think what that means is that she was she was in a shuttle tracking Spock down. She loses him in the Mutara Nebula because that's where they're at is the Mutara Nebula in episode five. Right. And then she loses him. Then Discovery shows up and sees a shuttle, assumes that it's Spock's shuttle that has Georgiou on it, and then they bring it aboard and get Georgiou out of it. So that's where I think it's not clearly... It's, they don't do a very good job of clearly distinguishing that there are two separate yeah. shuttles. Okay. But yeah, that's a total callback, and I loved that piece because uh, that, to me, asks a lot of questions. Like, did Spock know what's going to happen? I mean, we'll obviously find out, but, you know, a lot of, uh, let's say, significant events in Spock's life happen in the Mutara Nebula. It's no surprise that that he found himself there. Well, what's interesting is that Burnham even says at the beginning of this episode in her voiceover that there are three great mysteries in life, birth, life, and death. And it's interesting that the Mutara Nebula plays a part in this because that is where Spock currently was just now and then where he ends up dying the first time. So uh, moving on, uh, Amanda drops the needs of the many against the needs of the of the few or the one line to uh, to Burnham. To Sarek, actually, she's she's trying to she's trying to convince Sarek why they need to protect Spock. And, and not send him on to Section 31. Yes. I thought she was talking to Burnham when, she's, when she says that that's what Sarek will say. Oh, okay. I don't remember it exactly. But yeah, it's the, she, was, she was throwing it in the face. She was like, I know, you, I know that's what he'll say, but you know, that's not the case this time. The pyramid device near Spock is very similar to the one from Enterprise that uh, Archer uh, uses. Uh, it's that sort of pyramid Vulcan artifact. Also, if if you were looking closely, the Section 31 phasers look almost identical to the Star Trek 6 phasers hmm. that, that, that they use in that episode. And I think we're getting sort of a theme here that Section 31 possesses technology that will eventually come to the all of Starfleet. You know, the communicator badges, these um, these phasers, that kind of stuff. So... Um, I actually think that's kind of cool. I like the way that they're doing that. Uh, And then, of course, the big one at the end of this episode, uh, we're going back to Talos 4. Now, before we go on to our pros and cons, I think we need to spend a little time talking about Talos 4. Mm -hmm. There's some confusion as to why Talos 4 is being introduced in Star Trek Discovery. And I think that, that either that'll be answered in next week's episode or they're asking us to do a little bit of homework and check out the back catalog of CBS All Access. (laughs) It's a great marketing tool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
Star Trek Discovery takes place three years after the events of The Cage, which is Star Trek's pilot episode with Christopher Pike. With Pike and and Spock was involved in it as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So the events of The Cage have already happened. Right, and even I was confused about this because I remember we this was the thing. I remember that, that they had made this clear in early discussions and early promotions of, of Star Trek Discovery. That this is in fact a few in between the cage and then Kirk's TOS. Right. So it's important to note that whatever the, the reason Spock knows about Talos Four is because he's already been there. I don't want to go into what happens with the menagerie. Yeah. Because that's in the future. But it's important. It's very important to know that Spock's already been there. Yeah. He knows what the Talosians are capable of. Yeah. And that's why we're going there. And the cage has already happened. And I would recommend that you rewatch the cage. And if you want to do a little further homework, watch parts one and two of the menagerie, which tell the story much later. But rewatch the cage because knowing that the cage takes place three years prior to Discovery, you, you also appreciate more of Anson Mount's portrayal of Christopher Pike. Mm-hmm. There are some nuances in the text and the script of the cage that Anson Mount has really fleshed out as a captain on yeah. Discovery as Christopher Pike. Rewatch it. It's going to give you a better appreciation for Anson Mount's portrayal. Um, and kudos to Anson Mount. Because he has enveloped himself in who Christopher Pike is without being stuck in that 60s mentality. Yeah, Pike is a really surprisingly multi-dimensional character from what we know of, of Star Trek. Because Kirk at the beginning was relatively flat, but Pike, when we first meet him, he's done. He's done with Starfleet. He's finished. And the events of the cage really test his resolve. And by the end, he's bought into the whole thing again. Three years later, we find him commanding Discovery and really gung-ho. He totally gets the whole Starfleet thing. And he's actually a pretty smooth operator within the Federation. So there's a, there's a lot of depth to that character. He's had this history of where he's come through, really hating everything about it, and then come through the other side. So, And you get that. You actually get that, I think, from his portrayal. So I agree with you. So let's jump into the cons. Anthony. Yeah, so I I very much enjoyed this episode. So I, it was a little bit hard for me to find something uh, that I didn't like. But then I remembered that there's this one moment uh, towards the end where Georgiou sort of usurps Leland's command by telling him something about wouldn't it be a shame if Michael Burnham found out that you were really responsible for the death of her parents, and and then and that moment I was like, are you kidding me? Like. Like, first off, you know, in, in just two episodes earlier, you know, Georgiou comes on board Discovery and Pike's like, oh, yeah, I met you in the Academy. And then he walks into a room with a hologram Leland and he says, oh, Leland, my old friend. And now Leland's responsible for Bern-. It's like, does everybody yeah, There are only 12 people in the galaxy like, in Discovery. I understand. Yeah, it's like I it's like I understand this is going to create dramatic tension, but come on. Like, really? That's one of the first moments of this show that I've really been like, all right, you guys like let's just get to the dramatic tension and skip over, you know, why everybody is connected and whatnot. So I'll I'll go next. Um, So I'm not going to say too much about it because I don't want to rant. And I I think it's an unpopular opinion. I was really disappointed by Spock. I think, you you know, and not saying anything about the actors, I think they did a pretty good job with what they had. Generally speaking, I feel really disappointed with their whole treatment of Spock. Um, and it's really, it's, I'm finding it difficult to get past this whole retcon and filling in these ideas. Um, I am not convinced yet that we even need to have Spock involved at all. I'm not convinced that we couldn't have this be Michael Burnham's some brother or some other person that doesn't have to be Spock. And it's, and it's, it's becoming, it's difficult for me to marry up these things with the future Spock that we know and it's just a level of difficulty that I just don't need uh, while I'm ingesting my discovery so um, that's the con for me I understand that we've got some plot to play out and my opinion might change 
but so far I'm I'm not I'm not feeling it. I'm having a hard time discovering what Discovery's target audience is. So the exposition problem has definitely improved over the last two episodes, but we still get these little rushed one-liners of exposition. In this episode specifically, I felt that we could have spent an entire episode just dealing with this temporal rift. Yeah, agreed. And another episode with Burnham's relationship and discovery of Spock in the next episode. I think about, you know, these 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 one-liner dialogue points, for instance, on the bridge between Saru and Reese, and then later again with, between uh, Amanda and Burnham. You know, saying these things that rush the plot, rush the point, not the plot, but the point, right? On the bridge, it was Reese, you know, confirming with Saru something and giving a one-line babble. On Vulcan, it was Burnham talking about how if it was any other Vulcan, they would be driven insane by these emotions. These, these little plot points, these little moments of dialogue, I felt would have been better served instead of a one-off liner, just as a dedicated story. The biggest thing that comes to mind is Stamets. What is Stamets' role on Discovery now, right? Because it, it, it seems that now he's just chilling in his room, even before Colber, and then suddenly they need him and he comes rushing in. Right, and he has no idea what's happening and what's going on. So, so what is his role? Whereas in other iterations of Trek, by comparison, the people of authority on, on, on the starship, people with command level clearance, kind of are, are, are most of the time, all of them are in the know. I think of Geordi. Geordi always seemed to be one step ahead of what was going on. Well, we spent a lot of time in the ready room <laughs> in previous yeah, true, iterations. That's true, that's is there true. even a ready room on Discovery? Oh, wait, there is, because we've seen it once when Saru was sick. I remember that. But we don't right, spend a lot of right, time right. in the ready room. So, I, you know, again, I think that Stamets could have been given a, a much deeper reason of being on the ship had they separated these two episodes. So, again, my question is, who's the who's the audience? So let's move on to the pros and I'll start. Um, I loved all of the timey-wimey stuff that they were doing in this temporal distortion. I felt like it was so Star Trek. And I hate saying that because, like, what is and what isn't Star Trek? It's kind of a... It's a rubbish question. Um, but I really, um, that kind of stuff gets me really excited. That's like that's the kind of stuff that for Star Trek, they can have a lot of fun exploring um, because that's like the heart of sci-fi, right? It's not, it's not family drama. It's not, you know, political drama. It's like science fiction. And I love the little pieces where they had the little time shadows. I loved the fact that this probe comes back from 500 years in the future. I loved all of that action that was happening. It was great. I wanted to see more of it. Um, and I'm hoping that they kind of are able to do that in, in subsequent episodes. I really felt as though this was structured with sort of an A plot about the time distortion. And then they had the, the, the running undercurrent of the B plot, which was Spock. Um, and for me... The, uh, the temporal distortion was, was the big awesome one. One thing that really stood out to me for this is I love the continuation of the Alice in Wonderland motif. You know, when I first heard uh, Burnham talk about it in season one, I, I accepted it. I thought it was a little weird at the time. But now that, now that we're, we're coming back to that and it's playing more into their relationship and to in, you know, something that is seemingly core to Spock's childhood. I I'm really beginning to appreciate it more and I like that they keep revisiting that. Um, also, anytime Saru is in charge and the captain, it's like the best thing ever. Like, can we just all agree that he's the captain in season three? I just, I'm gonna have a hard time if he's not. Um, and uh, and the the burnham Georgiou fight, I loved how they teased it in the previous episode, like in the promo, that they were going to have a fight, and then we find out that it was kind of a staged fight, and but they were kind of going at it. I just, that whole scene I really enjoyed, I loved a lot, and um, and then of course, you know, 
going back to Talos for is going to be it's going to be great. I hope. I hope. No, I want to make a point it, actually so. about the Alice in Wonderland motif because this is something that confuses me a little bit. I I'm a huge fan. I love Alice in Wonderland. My nickname was Alice in Wonderland when I was a kid because I stare off into space and my name is Allison. So Alice in Wonderland, you know. Um, and what confuses me is it's a very common misconception that Alice in Wonderland is a is just an absurdist. Uh, fantasy story, and it isn't. It's actually a very pointed political satire. So it's a little bit of an odd choice to me that they are running this Alice in Wonderland theme through um, the series because it kind of misses the point of Alice in Wonderland. Um, and so I, I kind of wonder, I'd like to see it through, and I wonder where they're going to take it or whether they're just going to leave it as this because the, the beginning of Alice in Wonderland, they're going down the rabbit hole and the meeting all these bizarre characters. It, it, it does just seem like a weird fantasy, right? Trying to figure out which way is up. Um, but that's not the point of Alice in Wonderland at all. Um, and I wonder if they'll tie back to that or whether they're just going to gloss over it. I do want to give a shout out to Doug Jones. Uh, to your point, Anthony, that Saru has def- is a much different authoritative captain post-Ganglia. Uh, and you can see that. You can see that in his posture. You can see that in his articulation. You can see that in his delivery. So kudos to Doug Jones because it, it's it's slight but noticeable, and it's not over the top. It's not overacting. He's not all of a sudden this soldier. It's a nuanced change that delivers well. So uh, kudos to Doug Jones. To my earlier point about the con of this episode, the, the one of the things I liked about this episode were the two the two plots. I just wanted them to be given a little more time so that they weren't rushed yeah. and we didn't get these these one off things. But what was your favorite part of the episode, Elijah? What did you? Actually uh, well, like? let's let's compare the the shuttle battles from past Trek to this one. I mean, this one was just great, great cinematography, great special effects. The camera work for a tight space was mm-hmm. just perfect. I, I mean, we all remember, you know, DS9 shuttle f- skirmishes, TNG. <laughs> it's just, it, this is not that. This is what, what, what was it back in the, the JJ verse? This is not your grandfather's track or father's track, blah, blah, blah. This is great. And again, for a tight space, choreographed beautifully. You're talking about based when the probe comes back and um, Pike and Tyler are fighting with the probe inside the shuttle. Everything. The yeah. moment that, the moment we start seeing interior shots of, of the shuttle, yeah. it's a great adventure. It's yeah. a great cinematic adventure for a tight space and a, and, a, and, a, and a firefight. And, of course, who am I to ignore that sentinels are now coming after the Nebuchadnezzar? I, oh, uh, man, I meant Discovery. Whoops. Whoops. Wrong franchise. <laughs> oh. It was straight. You know what? It if, was it was me, if, it, if it was me, I would have put my hand up and just stopped it. <laughs> Did you not kind of half expect um, Ash Tyler to do that? Because if anybody, if anybody in Discovery is going to be the one, it's going to be Ash Tyler. Sorry. You're right. It would be Ash Tyler. It would Tyler. be Ash Tyler. But, yeah. Well, that wraps up this week's On Screen. And while we've been very busy publishing so many interviews from our visit to Cryptic Studios, we haven't been asking a lot of community questions. So be sure to answer this week's. What will you miss most about the Foundry in Star Trek Online? Do you have a favorite mission? Well, that wraps up episode 403 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log and Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or find us on Twitter and Instagram at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.PriorityOnePodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, and Twitter. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. Are you not getting enough of Priority One? Well, be sure to spend time with Admiral Winters and the Priority One Armada, because Saturday nights, the Armada goes live 
as they review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as spotlight some of the amazing members in our community. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, to earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there's something for all Star Trek Online players, new and old. Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash priority one. And if you'd like to join the Armada, visit PriorityOneArmada.com. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at Patreon.com forward slash Priority One. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about our show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at GuardFrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. Thanks to our audio editors, including Brandon Parker, James Golding, Rand Hurl, Daniel Stevens, Skiffy, and Winters. Thanks to our producer, Jake Morgan, for assisting in the writing of our show and social media endeavors. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper, with support from Jason Smith of the Priority One Armada. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. But most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Su no. Engage. Again, opinions. Opinions are like everybody's got them. <laughs> yep. I don't. I don't think. I don't think we can say that on we the can't, show. We can't. We can't. Everybody hit stop. In the name of love.